Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome to My Brother's Keeper, the television program that tells you what is happening in the world in relation to threatened Christian communities in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Western Europe, too. Uh, my two colleagues, uh, uh, Professor uh, Jeffrey Kaplan and Virag Lawrence, uh, are here to tell us their plans for looking at the situation faced by Catholics in six different countries. They're going to be going to those countries, and the next port of call is going to be Iraqi Kurdistan. Iraqi, Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan uh, are, in, by, I would guess, the kind of information we currently possess. Before you go, some of the areas, some of the countries where Christian communities are most threatened. Uh, they, this is the result of civil wars, um, uh, ISIS, um, the uh, uh, any a, a series of um, emigrations and and um, immigrations, and uh, so we have to therefore be cautious at this point about what you're going to find. But you will be looking at um, people at every level, from government officials to people in uh, displaced persons camps and and so on. So, uh, my first question uh, would be. Um, given the uh, uh, given the confusions, can you give me Virag a good idea of what the current religious breakdown is uh, in in Iraqi Kurdistan and in Iraq too? Regarding our research, it's very important to take a look at the demographic landscape of the country and also the religious landscape. So, as for demography. The country has more than 40 million inhabitants. And uh, out of that, the population of Christian people is uh, more than 150,000. So it it has a quite big uh, Christian population. But we also have to note regarding the religious landscape of the country that uh, it's ethnically diverse. And uh, the majority of of the people uh, are uh, Shia Muslim. Uh, and also it has, uh, within the population, Sunni Muslims as well. The, the number of Christians um, may not be, uh, may be quite substantial, but it's a dramatic fall, isn't it, from the past? It is indeed. We have to um, recall the memories from history in order to understand that. So the Iraqi Christians are uh, one of the oldest continuous Christian communities, uh, in the world, since Christianity was brought into Iraq in the first century. However, since then, if we just take a look at the uh, First World War and the events uh, of the First World War and the Turkish regime in the area, we have to see that uh, the Christian community decreased significantly and they lost over half of their members. And it meant that there were some territories within the, uh, within the country which lost one third of their Christian population. And of course, the uh, uh, Kurdistan, as its name implies, um, is composed mainly of Kurds, and those Kurds are themselves denied a country, 
uh, of their own until they until now, and secondly, um, f- uh, have difficult times with other with neighboring countries, in particular with Turkey and with Syria. Yes, and it it also has an impact on the situation of uh, Christians, because uh, after the territorial losses of ISIS, uh, there were uh, other threats, especially in the Iraqi Kurdistan region. Uh, just to mention the uh, Shia militias backed by Iran and also the uh, Turkish airstrikes, which made the Christians soft targets to attack. Now, could I ask Jeffrey at this point to explain um, how uh, these, this con- these circumstances came about, the, the background politically and militarily in recent years? Well, it's a deep question. Um, I think Barag gave us um, a pretty good, a pretty good outline. The situation with with Iraqi Kurdistan itself is, as you as you say, the Kurds have wanted an independent state for a very long time, and nobody else in the Middle East wants them to have an independent state, mm-hmm. particularly right now Turkey. And so, Iraqi Kurdistan is autonomous but not independent. They exist with Iraq in an often very uneasy situation. The conflict with Turkey is much sharper. Um, There have been airstrikes, as Virag says. There have been ground attacks. Christians are primary targets of this, perhaps not intended, but it falls on them. So we see an overall fall in the Christian population from... 300,000 in a decade ago to, at this point, 250,000 um, as of 2021. And there, is, there are great fears in the, both in Iraqi Kurdistan and in the Middle East that the population of Christians, one of the oldest historical churches in the world, may disappear entirely. And so you have, on the one hand, a threatened country. It's, uh, the Kurdistan is itself... Um, in a precarious position, and secondly, threatened Christian communities within uh, that community, and indeed, um, you has you say occasional bombings of, of villages, including Christian villages. So the question is, what are the legal circumstances? What legal protections do Christian communities have in Kurdistan, and what practical defences do they have? Uh, the legal landscape of the country leaves Christian, uh, especially Christian women, particularly vulnerable due to the f- fact that they don't really have any kind of legislation about domestic or against uh, domestic violence. Although I have to mention that in the Kurdish region, they had in uh, 2011 a legislation against uh, domestic violence. However, despite international uh, pressure, they don't have the same kind of protections for uh, for women in the in the Baghdad controlled territories, and it's not just women, is it? Because uh, the uh, men too uh, find themselves in peculiarly Christian men in peculiarly difficult circumstances. Yes, indeed, uh, and I would like to emphasize that there are uh, differences. I mean, there are similarities as well, but also differences uh, in the case where uh, we are to- when we are talking about the gender specific uh, religious violence. Virag, we have evidence about that, don't we? And not just about women. We have to be aware that um, the different forms of violence against Christians is also based on gender-specific issues. 
Here, I would like to shortly reflect to the words of uh, Giuliana Taimurazzi, who is the founder and the president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council and uh, also a former Nobel Peace Prize nominee. There are so many stories that I can tell you, but something that really I don't hear much being talked about is uh, the dignity factor, uh, human dignity, especially when it comes to men. When we were distributing this, these packets, uh, the first man, when he came to me to collect the packet, uh, he didn't look at me. His head was down. The second man, when he came to pick it up from me, I asked for his name and uh, he said he whispered it and he ran away. That is the moment that it hit me. These men, their, their dignity has been stripped away from them. They weren't able to defend their families. They weren't able to defend their children. They have lost everything. And here is a woman from the West who has brought them aid. And they don't even have the money to go and purchase what they need. They have to heavily rely on the goodness of charity organizations. And that is something ever since 2016, I came to become aware of the loss of dignity and the massive depression that men specifically have been fallen into. That, that's the case, isn't it, in both um, in, in Kurdistan itself, but also in the refugee camps where many of these uh, the Christians are, are, uh, have fled and, and uh, continue to flee. Perhaps I could uh, turn to Jeffrey at this moment and ask about um, the the rate of exiles and 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 what uh, is happening to them and and um, and how and whether or not uh, we should pursue the policy of t- attempting to assist them where they live, or whether we should facilitate their movement to other parts of of uh, of the world. Because where they live, it's where their homes have been, their traditions are. And as you say, where they're the uh, some of the oldest traditions in the Middle East. There are two waves of migration to, to Kurdistan by Christian refugees. One was 2014-2015 after the ISIS campaign largely wiped out Christian communities in southern Iraq. And they fled north to Kurdistan into the Nineveh Plains where they have settled. That's one wave. The second wave has come in from the conflict in Syria. And so you have two very different um, groups of people in all cases, but especially in the case of the IDPs, the internally displaced persons. It's vital to keep Christianity as a tradition in Iraq itself, in Kurdistan itself, in the Nineveh Plains themselves. And to do this, both there and virtually every other country we've been looking at, it does require development. Um, Hungary Helps does a great deal of this as one agency of the Hungarian government, going into re- going into specific localities, listening to the people themselves about their needs, and trying to create at least the beginnings of economic infrastructure that would allow men to make a living and women and families to be able to live in a safe, secure environment. The second wave, the Syrian refugees, whether whatever their religion, 
are in are in very dire straits. Um, the situation in the camps is not good. The rates of sexual assault and vi sexual violence is extremely high in those camps. And Fred, frankly, nobody wants to take them. Um, there's nowhere for them to go. Thank you for correcting my slip of the tongue about exiles from and to, but we're talking about people going in for refuge in, in Kurdistan here. Um, that raises the question of how that is received, how that exile flow is received by non-Christians in Kurdistan. The IDPs have been, and perhaps Virag can correct me in terms of gender violence, have been relatively well received because their numbers are relatively small. Um, they were going into communities that were primarily Christian to begin with. Mm. And so the absorption process wasn't as difficult. The refugees coming in from Syria is a completely different, uh, something completely different. In either case, there are very high rates of violence in Kurdistan. Um, the, Kurd the Kurdistan government has tried to address this, but they have so many security concerns between what's happening with the Shia militias in the south, what's happening with the Turks, that this kind of internal security is a very formidable challenge. When we get to Kurdistan in a few weeks, one of our one of the um, groups and people that we will be interviewing is the Peshmer, one of the Peshmerga commanders, and he'll be able to give us much more detail on the security situation, both for the refugees and for Iraqi Kurdistan as a whole. Can you give us some information about uh, aid, where it comes from? Uh, who delivers it and how effective it is. I mean, we've seen re uh, um, a moment ago someone describing the aid from um, a specifically Christian organization. But what about official aid, government-to-government uh, -government aid? I don't really have the statistics on that. Um, I'm not sure how significant it is. You have the, U the, U um, the United Nations, you have various Western donor states, but honestly, I don't have that information. In not many countries, I think, uh, have taken the view that they believe that the aid should be delivered in situ where, where the um, uh, people live, and in this case, where the, some of the exiles from, uh, from Iraq also live. Um, but Hungary has, hasn't it? Hungary's, um, Hungary's attempt, uh, mentioned by Jeffrey, is specifically designed to create circumstances in which the communities can be protected and assisted the, there. Yeah, yeah, the essence of that is exactly uh, how you just said, is to uh, handle the situation there uh, and, uh, and uh, try to solve the, uh, the roots of the problem. And another challenge or issue which we would like to deal with when we are doing our research, is the situation of those Christians who were converted from Islam, because uh, those people are uh, particularly vulnerable. Now, another source of vulnerability, again, uh, is, is sexual. And um, uh, we, we, we heard this about the situation from uh, concerning men. What about the situation concerning women? Again, we have some evidence of that, don't we? Yeah, and I, once again, I think um, Juliana Tomaruzzi would be a very good source to begin the discussion. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a Christian woman 
who used to host a feast on Sundays for her family, who had a beautiful garden that she used to plant vegetables in. And now she, for many years, these refugees were caught in storage containers, literally 12 feet storage containers without a window in a camp, in a large camp, without having their home, without having their garden, without having their family. The families are torn apart. So that's another form of um, emotional abuse that has been uh, affected, they've been affected by. So uh, women have suffered in, in one way, by seeing their husbands fall into massive depression, by seeing their husbands turning to gambling, for example, or alcohol use, or just remaining silent. Children, I can't tell you how devastated my community is by calling this generation the lost generation. As she, as she points out, the situation is almost is corrosive in that it's it feeds on itself the depri the deprivation and lack of resources lack of employment for men is reflected on the women and the children and whether you're talking about Iraqi Kurdistan yeah. or anywhere else that leads to high levels of frustration which leads to high levels of domestic violence which leads to high levels of sexual abuse the in what has been reported also in Kurdistan in terms of women is that Christian women are, as Virag points out, particularly vulnerable in that they don't wear hijab. And so they're perceived as being sexually available. And that creates very high levels of sexual harassment to the point that some Christian women have started wearing hijabs. Others, uh, there was a campaign, which was actually quite interesting, to get women, to, Christian women, to wear headscarves in imitation, as they said, in imitation of Mary. But again, it was the, the underlying motivation here was um, security. Now, in Western societies, we can presumably say to um, uh, men of all kinds who treat um, a woman who's who's dressed in a conventional Western or certainly non-Islamic way, we can insist, even though we don't always do this, we can insist that they should respect that and, and treat them with, with due respect. Is it impossible to do that in the circumstances of the camps to actually, in a sense, firmly educate the men that these women are not sexually available? What protections of that kind that work um, do, do you... Can you tell us about? It's a kind of uh, different situation maybe within the camps because that's a very um, close community. Yeah. But uh, just to mention the constitution of Iraq, it states that the um, the uh, state religion is, is Islam, but it also expresses the, uh, uh, the freedom of religion. Um, and uh, in this case, Although it is not uh, forbidden to convert from uh, Islam to Christianity because of the fact that they apply Islam principles, um, it is uh, not working in, in uh, practice. And so it makes the, 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 those people who are converted especially vulnerable, not just in their, in their private life, for example, the way that they cannot express freely, mm. freely their faith, yes. but also it has an effect uh, on, on their family lives. So if there is, a, for example, there is a, a Muslim woman who converts to Islam, it is not officially recognized by the authorities. So the children will be registered 
as a Muslim. Well, let me turn to Jeffrey and say that, ask in a way the same question to begin, mm-hmm. uh, and that is um, uh, disrespecting women who are not dressed as you um, would wish is not a principle of Islam, is it? It's not a teaching of Islam. No, it's it's a cultural um, background. And so, in a sense, um, is, what prospects are there of changing this cultural attitude? It's a, let me go back a bit, yeah. because when I first went to the Middle East, and this would be to places like Iran yeah. in the 70s, to Saudi Arabia in the 70s, 80s, it was very common to see Western women or women dressed in Western clothes being sexually harassed. And it wasn't an Islamic issue. It was a cultural misunderstanding uh, made not just because, not because of religious reasons, but because of media, because of movies, because of television series. And they looked at the behavior of women, of Western women in those series, and they assumed that all women behaved that way. So on the one hand, it was a cultural misunderstanding. It later... Um, whether you're talking about Egypt or Kurdistan or other places, it took on a more hostile tone. It took on a more sexual tone and it took on a more religious tone. And they put the three together and you ask them, why did you do that? And they'll say, oh, because they're not. Or they're not, they're not because they're not Muslim, because they're not dressed correctly. But it's a, but all of the, all of the reasons are mixed together in a way that make no sense even to the perpetrator. Only time will will address this. And, of course, there are worse cases than uh, Kurdistan by far, aren't there? We, mm-hmm. we were discussing Sudan uh, on another program. And, sure. And, and that uh, is a case where mass rape has become a weapon of war uh, and of subjugation. Um, but you were about to say something more, I think, on the... Um, uh, on the situation in uh, cultural situation in uh, in Kurdistan. Yeah, it's a it's something that is also reflective of a disrupted so uh, disrupted yeah. political situation of a disrupted economic situation. I think again, in fairness, you see attacks on Muslims in the way in Western countries in Europe or the United States because of the way they're dressed. Um, there is it's not a it's not something that happens only on one side, but it's much more pervasive in the Middle East. It's much more pervasive, and it is um, again this is a question. It's more pervasive. Is it? Is it, however, punished? I mean, that is to say, are the legal um, situation and the practical expression of law, does that actually have an impact on protecting the virtue of, of Christian women? But there are some parts of, of law, of course, which are protecting uh, women as well. But as I uh, mentioned previously, for example, a very big issue, which is, uh, which is domestic violence, that is not efficiently um, detailed. Like uh, in the Kurdish region, uh, there is a legislation regarding that. But in the Baghdad-controlled areas, despite the uh, the international pressure, they don't really have um, um, proper legislation for that. Yeah, the Women's Health Journal, in two, as far back as 2013, did a survey and reported that in the area... Roughly 45% of women reported intimate partner violence and 21% reported sexual violence. And those are only those who can report because women do not report 
in these areas because of the impact on family, on their own status. One has to remember, of course, that there was an epidemic of rape at the end of the Second World War as well by the victorious armies in Europe. So um, I I think we, um, um, I I agree with you, we don't want to, in a sense, unduly emphasize the religious aspect of this. It's there, however. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, um, final reflections on what you intend to look at uh, particularly Virag, in your case, when you get to uh, uh, to Kurdistan? Yeah, the main point of uh, taking both men and women into Kurdistan uh, within the framework of our research is to be able to do the deep interviews and to try to understand uh, more deeply the situation of especially women and uh, not just... Uh, uh, those women who were originally Christians, but also those women who were converted from Islam. And I think that it's it's also a very difficult situation because uh, there are a um, large amount of uh, women who were, for example, taken to sexual enslavement during the time of, of ISIS. And they have to carry a very heavy burden and they uh, have to try to somehow go on with their, with their lives. And uh, I find it especially important to try to understand and try to uh, have a view about the life of these women. Well, of course, that's very important. And what's very important, too, is the degree to which we can um, assist those women and indeed the men whose plight we also discussed before. Any final thoughts from you? Yeah, and in terms of the research itself, we've, you know, obviously my brother's keeper is about the Christian communities and we focused our discussion of that. But in terms of our research, we're talking to all communities. And so we'll be interviewing government officials, military officials, NGOs, um, the various churches, Muslims in the area, and even at why we're going to one camp to talk to imprisoned ISIS prisoners. So the idea is to see the world through the eyes of all involved. Well, you have taken on a very a big task. Uh, I wish you well in it. Um, we will be returning at some point in the future when you can present the results of your investigations and research. And in the meantime, I want to thank you both and to say to our viewers, um, in order to keep track of what my colleagues achieve, turn tune in, if you would, again, to My Brother's Keeper. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.